in between episode 21, Different Views on How to Drive Value in Healthcare. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. After having hosted this podcast for four plus years, I have had this expanding folder of clips and occasionally outtakes. Stuff that just never makes it onto the show. Sometimes it's really good content, but a little tangential to the main context of the episode. Or it could simply be that the question and answer are too long. I try to keep the podcast episodes close to 30 minute mark. So if something just is too complicated, a lot of times I'll wind up cutting it. For this in-between episode, I decided to pick up all this tape on the cutting room floor and see if I could find any themes that might be intriguing to clip together. And so it happened. We start out with some fighting words on what is disruption and what it takes to create disruptive change and drive value in healthcare. And we end with who will actually drive the disruption needed to create value in healthcare, really. Today's episode features Ross Bella, CEO at Alithius, episode 163, John Lynn, founder of Healthcare Scene, episodes 124 and 171, Gary Frazier, founder of Ohm Healthcare, episode 168, David Smith from Avia and founder of Third Horizon Solutions, episode 135, Alex Young, global strategist at Ernst & Young, episode 189, Joe Murad, president and CEO at Pocket Doc, episode 183, Fraser Bunton, president of value-based services from Evalent Health, episode 202, and A.G. Breitenstein, partner at Optum Ventures, episode 207. My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. First, we'll kick this off with serial entrepreneur Ross Bella, CEO at Altheus Inc., as well as other ventures. Ross gives a short list, five action items for employers to take if they want to get the most for their money out of the healthcare system. I love how Ross expresses the view that some of what people call incrementalism might actually be disruption in disguise. He mentions employers setting up on-site or near-site clinics as one example. All right, so maybe let's just kick this off with the spoiler. What are the five things that employers really need to be doing right now in order to effectively keep their healthcare costs under control. So let's get that list out of the way and then we can kind of see where we go from there. The first thing an employer needs to do to take control of their healthcare costs is to get access to their data. And if their administrator doesn't provide complete transparency to the medical and prescription data, they should get a new administrator. The second thing they need to do is to offer an incentive-based plan design that rewards employees for choosing high-value providers. And many of my clients are waiving the entire deductible and coinsurance when value providers are used. Third, they should use the data to create virtual neural networks and identify the centers of values within their PPO or contract directly with those willing providers who can offer bundled prices for certain services. Fourth, they should offer live care navigators or advocates that can help their employees navigate the healthcare system. It's just so complex. 
that even if you give the employee all the incentives in the world, that they are likely to give up and go to their regular ways, even at significant financial expense, because the system is that daunting to them. And then lastly, senior management has to be fully engaged in communicating the importance of controlling healthcare costs. And my clients that are most successful, and I'm measuring success as cost reductions in the 25% year over year, that's a true medical cost reduction of 25% year over year, it's because the senior executive team is out there consistently saying, this is important, here's how you do it, we support it, and it will result in good things for you and the company. And if I want to add one more thing, that there's an emotional component of what an employer must do, own the management of the healthcare costs and not just throw their hands up and say, it can't be done. We have employers who manage to get the price of some widget down to 0.0005 cents or something. And healthcare, which is often the largest cost after payroll, is still such a black box. When Scott Barkley was talking, he was talking about the lack of, what was he saying? He was talking about disruptive versus incremental change. And he was saying that there's not a lot of disruptive change, truly disruptive change in healthcare. And those companies that come out and try to do something disruptive typically don't last very long in the oligarchical environment in which we operate. I, I don't agree with that statement. I, I believe that there are many incremental changes that are happening in healthcare that will result in truly disruptive change. So most people don't think of a strategy like using an on-site or a near-site clinic as a disruptive change. They think of that as an incremental change. But the disruption is coming because these clinics are totally disrupting the referral patterns that aggressively redirect patients from the large health systems into much more cost-effective care paths. And once the large systems figure out that they're losing these patient populations, you will see a disruptive change on their side. This made me think of the conversation I had with John Lynn from Healthcare Scene, an amazing site with all kinds of blogs. And John also runs an innovation conference you should check out at healthcarescene.com. John talks very articulately about why it's tough for your average disruptor to break into healthcare and do their disruption thing. He says that if you want to create disruptive change, it's often best to do so one step at a time incrementally, keeping in mind that when you look in the rearview mirror all the way back to the very start of your journey, you might have actually accomplished something pretty darn disruptive. Why don't we start here? Why don't we see disruption in healthcare like we tend to see in other industries? I think there's a number of issues with disruption in healthcare and that makes it totally different than other industries. The first is that healthcare is extremely complex. And the second is that it's not a true market like you see in a lot of other industries. If you look at the biggest customer of healthcare, it's the government, which pays for about 60% of healthcare. And so that creates a really weird dynamic for the industry that makes it really hard to disrupt. 
having the government as a 60% of healthcare. And then the next largest customer of healthcare is all these employers, which also create a false market as well. And so when a lot of these disruptors or these disruptive innovations come, often using technology, they realize that healthcare is much more complex and you need to understand the dynamics of having the government as the largest customer and having all of these large employers that really don't mind spending the money because it's been a benefit to their customers. It's basically the cost of them doing business. So they haven't really wanted to focus their money and effort on how do we improve healthcare because they just said we have to do it. It's a benefit to our employees. And so let's do this for our employees. So there's this weird market dynamics that most people working in technology, which is obviously the biggest disruptor, although there's plenty of others, is they go to healthcare thinking it's like every other industry and it's not. And then the second piece beyond this about the complexity, I guess it would be the third. The third piece beyond this is that healthcare also has a ton of regulations that make it even more difficult to disrupt than other industries. I think what you're saying here is that this weird customer dynamic or false market, basically what that means is, and why it's the opposite of most other industries, is that in most other industries, the customer demands the innovation. Innovation happens to serve the customer. But if the customer in this case is not necessarily demanding any better, then there's absolutely no incentive. And arguably in the healthcare industry, there might actually be a disincentive to become more efficient or achieve more. Exactly. If you look at patients, they don't pay for healthcare. Their employer pays for healthcare or the government pays for their healthcare. When they go in, they don't mind paying for a $300 drug because their copay is $20, even if they were to try to do a private pay and could have paid 50 for it. And so the patients aren't motivated to disrupt it. And the employers aren't motivated to disrupt it because one, they don't understand the real problems. And two, they don't know how to solve the problems of that. They'd rather just make more money than to go in and try to figure out how to solve healthcare. It's much easier for them to generate revenue in their current business than it is to solve healthcare. Now, we've recently seen a collaboration between Amazon, Berkshire Hathaway, and Chase, JP Morgan Chase, where they realized, hey, healthcare has become an issue and it's grown so big, maybe we should try to address this. And we've seen employers do this over the years where they try to get together and try to solve the problems. But then I, every one of those initiatives so far has gotten to the point where they said, oh, you know what, <laughs> let's just pay for it and we can grow our business other ways. But, you know, Warren Buffett from Berkshire Hathaway called healthcare the tapeworm of business because it's just eating into their market share. And they allowed that to happen for years and years. Are we at the point where it's grown so big where these businesses will finally wake up and decide to solve something? Maybe, but uh, I'm a little skeptical that they'll really move the needle on it. I have interviewed a number of founders of platforms and technologies and various other services who serve employers who say, and maybe this recent collaboration between Amazon and Buffett and JP Morgan is a testament to this. They're saying that employers are standing up and starting to take note and also I've had several guests, including Gary Frazier and Dr. Josh Luke, talk about the millennials who are coming, 
who may actually be the patients who are well-equipped and have the motivation to start to demand change and, and actually be those customers. So I guess we are, what do they say? We live in interesting times. Indeed. I agree that employers are starting to care more, but it's not going to disrupt the healthcare system as a whole. Because even these, this combination of these three giants is still a small portion of our healthcare costs. And what they're going to do may benefit their bottom line, but will do little to disrupt the healthcare system as a whole, going back to the government owns 60% of the healthcare system, and they're not disrupting that. So, you know, that's just one small element. So that's where they're not going to do it. Now, the millennials is a different piece of this. And along with the millennials is also the increase in high deductible plans and patients starting to pay more for their health care. Those are trends that are happening. And we will see some change and they will demand different experiences. But at the core of what costs healthcare the most, those things don't really impact the highest costs of healthcare. They're on the periphery. Will it become larger? I hope so, because we need to lower the cost of healthcare. But I'm, I'm afraid that those type of patient-empowered solutions aren't what's going to lower the cost of healthcare. So John Lynn, at the end there, said that patient-empowered solutions aren't what is going to improve the value of healthcare. Speaking of patient-empowered solutions, I tried to get Gary Frazier from Ohm Healthcare to connect the dots between empowered patients and value-based care. And he agreed with John Lynn. In fact, he said to me, in the nicest possible way, that my question was kind of out of left field. We were talking earlier, so just kind of connecting the dots back to, in the absence of a critical mass of individuals acting like consumers, it doesn't necessarily behoove a hospital system at this time to encourage individuals to act like consumers. I, I mean, that's how network leakage happens. The exact opposite incentives typically apply. How does value-based payment models factor in here? I could see a circumstance where if there is a value-based situation going on, that almost patients could act like a double check to physicians who might have some legacy habits that the hospital system itself might be trying to discourage. So your question is, is how would a consumer, a true consumer impact that? Yeah, or whether in a value-based situation that it somehow is beneficial to a health system to have people acting like consumers within their system. Prior to Obamacare, but of course, when Obamacare came through, pushed hospital systems into the whole accountable care, value-based payment system, because obviously Medicare and Medicaid, but mostly Medicare, were moving in that direction. But without a payer, and in this case, like I said, the government payer saying, this is how we're going to be paying you now. I don't even think the health systems would have even moved into the value-based space. But since they're there, the reason I'm having a hard time with it is because I see the value-based payment system as a health plan, uh, insurer, uh, health system, hospital relationship. Mm -hmm. I get that the patient is somewhere in the middle there, but it is really about one of the blues or buka or somebody basically saying, we're going to pay you based on outcomes, based on value. That's what that's about. The patient, when they're making a decision, it's a perception of value, but it's not a value 
decision because they're not actually paying anything. So I don't know that that system connects the dots all the way back to a consumerism or consumer environment. I think it's an internal kind of deal. Here is David Smith from Avia and Third Horizon Solutions piling on. Consumers don't know enough, as in the old asymmetrical information problem, and they aren't exactly rational when it comes to healthcare. Again, the point is that it's hard for consumers, at least acting in a silo, to be a force strong enough to change ingrained economic models that we have in healthcare today. So I was reading a book by Dr. Andy Lazarus, which is called Curing Medicare. And and this is just very timely because I just finished it yesterday. But one of the things that he said was that the the way to reduce costs I'm just I want to get your take on this, David. The he said the way to reduce costs is actually to expand options, not restrict them. And this was his point that currently the cheap stuff is not paid for. A lot of the social determinants of health that you just mentioned, transportation, as well as home care, wheelchairs, palliative care, I mean diapers. You know, right now the only thing Medicare pays for is aggressive and expensive treatments. So patients who might not even want them, but they can't afford to pay for the less aggressive stuff because it would be coming out of their own pocket, wind up getting these overly aggressive, unhelpful, frequently harmful to their overall health kinds of treatments, which come at great expense to society. Do you see it the same way? And if so, how do you see that shaking out? I agree with the premise of that. I I think, and I think there are a couple of critical caveats here that are worth noting, and perhaps these are noted in in the book, or or maybe they're not. But you know, as a free market economist, I, I I think we sometimes operate under the fallacy that if we just impose certain core free market principles on healthcare, that innovators would innovate and consumers would vote with their feet and their dollars, and you'd start to see inefficiencies in the market meted out, and we would start to drive costs down. Healthcare suffers from a couple of areas where core economic principles begin to fail. Though One is just in transparency. No matter how you're acquiring services or purchasing services or, or interacting with your payer, oftentimes you don't have a full sense for the cost of those services, the quality of those services, the safety associated with those services. So it really precludes your ability to make a, a free market decision because you're not operating with full information. And that's a hallmark of, of any well-operating economy. And the second principle that really has to be abided by is rational decision-making, a rational consumer. But in healthcare, you're oftentimes imposing decisions or consumers are making decisions not entirely on the basis of rationality. We're, we're dealing with uh, issues that are, are critical. They're pervasive to people's lives. There's a huge amount of confidence and trust as, as it should be placed in the physician. And so the, there are limitations. Now, I, I give all of those, I give those two items as caveats, saying that doesn't mean we have to achieve a perfect economic environment for these kinds of efficiencies to be gained. I think if we are driving innovation and we are helping consumers responsibly navigate those expanded options that you referred to, whether it's through insurance coverage or products or the ways in which they can access uh, delivered services, that consumers will generally help meet out those inefficiencies in the system. So now we really get into economic models and how they create the messy middle of healthcare. A messy middle, by the way, that consumers have pretty much zero insight into and which drives costs in really sneaky, under-the-counter kinds of ways. 
Alex Young from Ernst & Young talked about this at length in episode 189, and she scratches the surface here. The problem we should be trying to solve is the efficient and rational use of the dollar. We should be looking at the economic model. We have focused so much on the business model that we forgot that the economic model is what's broken. Give me an example of that. So how we pay for drugs is a great example. We beat up on prices, but not on how those prices are set. The actual mechanics of setting a drug price is the problem. The mathematical equation or the formula that is used to construct the price is the problem. The price is not the problem. The equation is made up of multivariates. When I say multivariates, I refer you back to your algebra classes when we talked about linear equations where you're solving for multiples. There are multiple variables in the equation of a drug price because there are multiple parties that contribute to the price of the drug based on credits and debits applied to the price when it is set by the drug company. That price gets manipulated in the value chain by multiple parties that touch the product. They might be adding a profit or a mark. They might be taking a discount against it. They might be getting a retrospective rebate or credit against it. So every time that price moves through the system, it changes. It becomes a multivariate mathematical equation. So the problem with it is that we start out with one number, but because we've applied multiple variables of debits and credits against it, we end up with a completely different number. And in some cases, we might be inherently increasing it without the intent of making it higher, but middlemen or the parties in the middle are frankly money around and getting paid for that service. We've created an irrational economic model in which there's profit across the entire value chain. And as I would ask, is that necessary? Are those services necessary? Or are we doing what we're doing because we've been doing it that way for 30 years and we haven't stepped back to ask ourselves, is this a redundant process? Is it necessary for these services to be performed? Are these parties necessary in the value chain at all? I mean, we have a consolidated market. We're moving into an environment where there's automation. We're going to be moving into an environment where we have blockchain. Are all of these financial transactions, the way we perform them today, even necessary? And are they contributing to the price? Alex talked about the messy middle of drug pricing. Here's Joe Murad from Pocket Doc talking about the messy middle in medical services pricing. For instance, a lot of the clearinghouse services, for instance, last year, I believe, according to the IDC, there were 15 billion faxes. There was 375 billion in paper waste from carriers and payers, according to BMC research. And not just the associated expense and you know effect of using these antiquated processes, but really it's a security concern as well. So how do we strip out these unnecessary processes through these intermediaries by automating or digitizing some of those processes? Speaking of economic models, how's value-based care doing? I talked to Fraser Bunton from Evalent Health about where we are in the transformation of healthcare from fee-for-service to value-based care and who is driving that change. Where are we on the curve of health systems moving from the majority of revenue or all of the revenue coming from fee-for-service, FFS, to the majority of revenue coming from value-based care arrangements, or is that even ever going to happen? 
There's definitely movement from CMS. CMS continues to be the most progressive payer out there, and they are continuing to set the stage. Globally, though, it's it's pockets. You see pockets of of activity, and activity begets activity. So, you know, one health system in a market will start either a, a health plan or or an ACO activity, and and it will kind of generate local. Uh, response there from competitors. So it's it's definitely moving. You know, it is fits and starts. It has uh, degrees of uncertainty, but but it feels like we're probably not yet at a tipping point. But but there's definitely momentum. Are you seeing this as being health system driven? This move to value based care, or is this something that employers in the area are insisting upon? I feel like there's been a little bit of a pause in, in all but the largest employers. So put aside the Walmarts of the world and the Amazons of the world. With the rest of the employers, I think they've got some temporary relief from high deductible plans and, and shifting some of the rest to their employees. And, and most of the activity is driven from health systems and physician groups that frankly want to control their own destiny, or they have seen some of the incentives from the Medicare side, from the CMS side on on ACOs or the penalties uh, and are taking more action than anyone. Okay, so it's basically CMS driving value-based care. A.G. Breitenstein from Optum Ventures believes in the power of consumers en masse to move markets. Optum Ventures is focusing on this aspect. I find that interesting. The idea is, at the end of the day, patients drive the dollars around the system, right? Everybody focuses on the payers and the providers and the employers and the... But really, the patient drags this whole system behind them as they start to initiate contact, make choices, and then sort of proceed downstream. And so that consumer today, if you imagine them moving through that system, is pretty much walking around blindly, has a whole bunch of pieces of Velcro stuck to them to keep them from moving through that that system seamlessly, has very little ability to understand the information that's surrounding them and causing the decisions to be made around them. And that experience today is how we feel, right? As we, if you are injured or you become sick, even I, I was talking to somebody today about, you know, if you, if you have to get knee surgery, and I've been through that, you still, at, at the level that, you know, you and I and most of the people listening to this are at, we still don't know the first step, right? <laughs> we still actually, if we step back and thought about it, are like, oh, I wouldn't actually know where to call or where to go. If you think about that relative to everything else in our experience on a day-to-day, which is becoming so attuned to us, I mean, I walk to my car and it senses my phone and opens the door for me now. That seamlessness of experience is generalizing across all of the rest of the economic landscape that we walk through every day. And my phone, you know, my computer tells me all the information I need to make choices that were very complex. If I want to get a a solar panel put on my house, I know all of the information about how much it's going to cost and who's good and who's bad and how do the systems work and what are the choices and how do I get credits on my utility bill. None of that is apparent in healthcare. So that dissonance of experience to me causes more and more pressure of people looking at the system and saying, what the heck? Why does this not work the way it is working in every other domain, which then causes expectation? And if you can meet that expectation, now you can start to move those bodies in a different direction. And again, that movement of the system drags a whole host of dollars and implications with it if you can get those patients to move en masse. 
Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.